0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Mere Fidelity, where we have conversations about life, theology, the church, and the culture. My name is Derek Rishmawi, and I'm joined by most of our cast and crew: Matthew Lee Anderson and uh, Fancy Doctor Roberts, Alistair Roberts. Uh, here we are again. Boo. We're starting, you know, starting off, starting <laughs> off fresh. Um, Matt is booing <laughs> the the Fancy <laughs> Doctor partially because before we even got on, on recording here this is well a week from when you're listening uh, he was dogging us for the U.S. men's uh, soccer performance and not arriving or not making it to the World Cup um, we were mentioning this because we know our readers our listeners are so cultured that they follow esoteric games like soccer uh, you know outside of our outside of the American context so um, yeah, so Alistair really just got us off to a, an aggressive start this morning, you know, with his <laughs> yeah. unprovoked aggression. Um, really That's right. Just out of line. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> but with that said, we are actually going to be continuing on uh, for in our in the second week of our uh, confessions discussion. We've had a couple of off weeks because of technical difficulties, uh, phones breaking things and things of that nature. But we're excited to get back to book two of the confessions with Augustine. And, um, I, I suppose I'll start here. Uh, this is one of those funny things where I read this for the first time 10 years ago. Um, and I was blown away by book one with all these re- reflections on the self and God and so forth. And then, um, book two, I mean, obviously it was well-written and all that, but I, I, uh, I was a bit confused initially and, um, the whole focusing in on stealing a pair, right. That just kind of, that threw me, that, that threw me a curveball of like, you know, we're hearing about his, we're going to hear about his lewd and, you know, tumultuous past. And then, and then we get to, uh, at the end of these reflections, just really extended agonizing over this act of pear theft in his, in his, uh, youth. And, um, I remember being thrown by that the first time uh, and not, not really quite figuring out what was going on there. Uh, until we had class on it, um, I, I don't know. You guys, when, I mean, when, when you when you first read this passage, uh, were you were you a more enlightened reader than myself? Uh, did you immediately discern what was going on? What were your initial reactions when you first read uh, Book Two of the Confessions?
1: My first thought was whether he was purposefully creating or exploring parallels in the reader's mind between the sin of Adam and Eve and his sin. Uh, sin that exposes something about the true nature of sin as rebellion and how we relate to that act. Um, but yes, there's a lot going on in the passage. Um, there's a fantastic section of Peter Brown's recent review of Sarah Rudin's translation of the Confessions. He writes, Rudin also might have explained even more fully the carefully constructed sense of vertigo induced by the direct encounter of two totally incommensurable beings, a storm-tossed human and an eternal god. She presents this supreme incongruity almost as an occasion for merriment. In describing Augustine's intellectual fireworks, she stresses the element of free-floating, almost childlike intellectual play beneath the eyes of God. He was a being so different from us that even the most serious intellectual endeavour on our part was vaguely vaguely ludicrous. But Augustine also uses this sense of vertigo in a different way. He has a deadly gift for miniaturising sin. There are no large sins in the Confessions. Those that he examines most closely are tiny sins. He spends a large part of Book 2, nine entire pages, examining his motives for robbing a pear tree. Modern reader's chafe, Rum Thing, wrote Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes to Harold Lasky in 1921 to see a man making a mountain out of robbing a pear tree in his teens. But Holmes was wrong to be impatient. Only by winnowing winnowing every motive that played into that obscure act of small-town vandalism was Augustine able to isolate the very smallest, the most toxic concentrate of all, the chilling possibility that he had acted gratuitously, simply to show that he, like God and then like Adam, could do whatever he wished. The publishers were right to put on the jacket of this book, which contains a succession of sins, each reduced to a chillingly minute proportions, the image of a half-eaten pear.
0: Well then, hmm. Um, yeah, that that's that's a that's a striking passage in the uh, in the review, uh, and it really does begin to get at what's going on there. Matt, you just hummed. What's what's behind the hummed?
2: well i mean uh he, he there's there's a question about whether or not augustine does come around to anything like a meaningful answer for what his motivation or reason for action actually was in uh stealing the player i mean uh Brown's description of of the action as gratuitous um it's it's Gratuitous makes it seem uh like it's a kind of excess. Uh um but there's a real sense in which he just does he literally doesn't have a reason. Um he goes through all of these uh options, these possibilities, and um at the end is left in, in a kind of mist uh mystery about it. Um because because fundamentally uh what sin is is irrationality right it's it's that which stands outside of or against uh practical reasons and stands outside of or against actual goods real goods um and so all of the all of the um apparent goods that augustine names like his friendships, or the pleasure that he would take in eating the pear, um, fall to the ground. Upon his scrutiny, they don't they don't survive his uh, inquiry into his reasons. Um, uh, which which is it? I mean, at that point, is it just to show that Augustine could do? whatever he wanted, that he could sort of assert himself as rebel uh, against God, Um, or is it to show that the the deep fundamental incoherence of a life lived uh, uh, in accordance with sin?
0: Um, yeah, I mean that's, that's, that's yeah. it's an interesting discussion in the ancient context where you've got – this was one thing my professors pointed out years ago was the, the discussion of, of whether or not any action could be truly irrational uh, or is or there some deeper rationality that's not being teased out, you know, akrasia or it is a weakness of the will or um, – and that interrogation of it to just see – and I've gone through it all. I cannot explain it. There is, there is just something sorted about the fact that I did this thing, which I didn't need to do, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't because it was tasty, I had better ones, I could, you know, I could have done other things with my friends, there is just something perverse about the whole thing, you know, at the end, and the end there, 34, who can, who can untie this extremely twisted and tangled knot it is a foul affair, I have no wish to give attention to it, I have no desire to contemplate it. My desire is for you, justice and innocence. You are lovely and splendid to honest eyes. The, sa- the satiety, the satiety of your love is insatiable, and he goes on, um, just comparing the destitution of his of his sin with the glory of God, um, and I think there's something, there's something there about just staring at sin long enough. I mean, people can be morbid, you know. Morbid in staring at sin, you know, self-focused and, and, and to an obsessive and even weirdly prideful way. Um, but that, that healthy level of staring at it long enough to be horrified and then turn from it, um, that it, it has a different effect than just a kind of a clinical clinical discussion of what constitutes an action or what constitutes a sin. Um, so it's like as if he can he conducts both at the same time he really he really interrogates it to bring you to that final point of of you know turn away from this with me like this this isn't you know and if he can do that with stealing a pear, um, you know how much more some of the heavier and weightier uh, sins. That that we were tempted by, but I think
2: it, it 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 is the fact that it is a pair that gives it so much power, right? Right. I mean, it's 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 the incongruity of him starting the chapter by talking about his wanton lust and his deep perversions as a young man, uh, and then it shows up in this episode with a prayer uh, with a pair, um, a seemingly mundane irrelevant, um, totally innocuous sin, quote unquote, um, uh, to most of us. And, uh, it's just, it's just that juxtaposition that, that makes the pair so memorable, uh, and so effective as a literary device. Um, and it shows the, the kind of all encompassing, uh, rigor of, Augustine's spirituality, right? There's no corner of his soul that can be left unturned by uh, the inquiry of grace and by the inquiry of divine judgment um, that he's putting himself through. Uh, and I think that's that's um, it's, it's an extraordinary moment. And I think there is a question, Derek, within what you were saying about Um, the limits or the the benefits and the dangers of introspection proper, right? For for years, I had heard, um, there's sort of one very standard reading uh, of Augustine that I think is ill-informed. It just says, well, the guy's a narcissist. He's uh, scrutinizing his own life at a level at which you should never scrutinize. And this sort of introspection that he's, undertaking is indicative of a kind of narcissism. And I think that just ends up being wrong, right? Like, like the, the, the inquisition of his sin paradoxically, if you remember the end of book one, he's, he's not uh, inquiring into himself at this point, he's identifying those things that he did that um, are vices or that are instances of his vices, which fundamentally aren't him. Uh and so he's he's saying he's sort of rejecting his own past by way of re narrating it through uh this lens of grace. And I think that's it's it's it it changes the nature of the introspection and, and the self scrutiny. He's not putting himself through an extended enneagram test here for the sake of
0: more <laughs> self knowledge. That's oh, not. Oh man, that's not I what's happening. John Stark, so, you listen? Sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, oh man, no, but but really, uh, to, to to pull on that thread, I mean, really, the key there is. Um, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of self being intertwined because as, as introspective and navel gazing, it can initially appear every paragraph. I mean, most paragraphs end with some kind end or begin with some sort of juxtaposition with himself and with God. Um, like the, 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 the nature of whatever he was pursuing and then the nature of God, um, You know, but sin is committed for the sake of all these things and others of this kind when in consequence of an immoderate urge towards those things which are at the bottom end of the scale of good, we abandon the higher and supreme goods that is you, Lord God, and your truth and your law. These inferior goods have their delights, but not comparable to my God who has made them all. It is in him that the just person takes delight. He is the joy of those who are true in heart. Or he goes on, you know, section 13, you know, Talking about pride, and he says, "Oh, pride imitates what is lofty, but you alone are God most high above all things. What does ambition seek but honor and glory? Yet you alone are worthy of honor and glory and are glorious for eternity. The cruelty of p- the powerful people aims to aro- to arouse fear. Who is to be feared but God alone? What can be seized or stolen from his power, when or where or how or by whom? And he, and he, he just keeps going on there and passage after passage." Uh, He talks, he ends up talking about God in comparison with the goods that his sin, uh, his sin pursues, or he pursues in sin, or of the malformed acts uh, that he, that that are his sins and, and, and even the way that those are dim and, you know, pathetic imitations of something great and glorious about God. And so, you know, reading it again with new eyes, it's, it's, it is striking to come back and just see how much theology proper there is, again, in a chapter on the dissolute nature of his youth, right? How his misspent youth and there's, you know, there's five-star, five-star theology, doctrine of God, like just interspersed, right? That is the weirdest way to do, I mean, in, in my mind, it's the weirdest way to do, all right, I'm going to give you a doctrine of God. All right, let's talk about, let's talk about age 13, You know, but, but he pulls it off and that's one of the, I mean, that's one of the really most astonishing things about this chapter to me is, is just how thoroughly theological it is, uh, to the core. Um, which actually brings me to another, uh, question. One of the, one of the, um, one of the things that struck me here is again, the the question of, of, of Augustine trying to discern what God was doing in these years, um, I'm trying to find the right passage, um, where, where he was, he was basically, he's basically questioning like, why, why did you, why did you let me, right? Why did you let me go against your law? Why did you let me, um, you know, throw off the reins, um, here, here, like so, so he, he begins with some of those reflections, but on page like twenty seven, he starts to come to some realization about what God was doing. And he says, "He says, wretch that I am, do I dare to say that you, my God, were silent when in reality I was traveling farther from you? Was it in this sense that you kept silence to me? Then whose then whose words were they? But yours, which you were chanting in my ears through my mother, your faithful servant." But nothing of that went down into my heart to issue that inaction. Her concern was that I should not fall into fornication and above all. And he kind of goes on in this, but, but um, he goes on and he says, but they were your warnings and I did not realize it. I believed you were silent and then it was only she who was speaking when you were speaking to me through her. Um, I don't know that, that thread. I'm curious what you guys made of, of that sort of post hoc analysis that, you know, a- after the fact analysis of what's, go- what was going on in God's apparent silence or possible speech, uh, through, through Monica and through just, uh, I mean, just the course of providence there, like even the prod, the, the project of trying to discern God's providence in letting him stray. Um, I don't know, Alistair, you've been quiet for a while. It's your turn.
1: I mean, like the issues with um, understanding his sin, there is, a, there is a mystery there. I don't think he lands upon a, a clear answer.
2: Yeah, it seems to me that there's... So one thing that came to mind in reading that, Derek, was remembering what he had said about his nurses uh, who were breastfeeding him when he was an infant and the way in which he was being communicated to, he was sort of receiving sustenance and, and as, as a kind of symbol or sign of God's grace, uh, through, uh, that means, even though he wasn't aware of it at the time. And, uh, here, the, the, the retrospective consideration is the same, right? He was in fact being called to, he was in fact, um, in one sense the the recipient of divine grace um but it had its limits because his um his heart and his desires didn't allow these words to penetrate uh into his actions and to actually form him um but but it is you know it's what 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 strikes me um is you know do I, do I dare say that you my god were were silent when in reality I was traveling farther from you um, the 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 language of like traveling and and distance, you know this this notion that he was traveling farther from God, but there is a sense in which um he also is affirming just how close God was to him in those instances when he was departing, because the words of his mother were ringing in his ears, and it turns out the words of his mother were actually the words of God, God communicating to him through the person of his mother, and so on and so forth. And so even though he um, was abandoning God through the force of his impulses, um, he, he comes around on the far side and discovers that uh, uh, in his abandonment, uh, he, he failed, right? <laughs> he did not succeed in what he was attempting to do at escaping the divine word um, because God is, is sort of constantly reaching out to him even in ways in which he didn't recognize. And I think it's that sense of failure, that sense of frustration um, that, that is tied to the impossibility of sin. Uh, you just can't you can't you aren't going to get the thing that you want which is escape from the almighty um you think you can and it might seem like you are abandoning but you're not um uh, he's there before you uh calling to you and in one sense passing judgment on you um which which i think is is just a great
0: uh yeah it's a great lesson yeah it's the whole and the whole notion of i mean i guess that provokes the whole notion the, the question of spatiality and more broadly i when i hear language like that i mean augustine's a master at at teasing some of this out in metaphysics i mean he, he does this in on the trinity i think we i can't remember if we talked about this uh last episode but the uh when he talks about what does it mean that the son was sent um, into the world in the incarnation, given that he's omnipresent, right? There's got to be something else going on there with language, but um, having that sense of space of nearness and closeness to God in scripture, um, considering that I think is undervalued often I th- when, when we in theological reflection uh, it, it's natural to think that way in just regular preaching and counseling we, we always u- we use language of nearness and closeness I think just instinctively uh, on analogy with our own relationships closeness, emotional closeness is close to physical and closeness and so on and so forth but that notion of God's traveling towards him these, this journey uh, I just think of the, that notion of uh, the, way, the way holiness, so I've been reading a lot about holiness lately, and, and Alistair and I have talked about this. Holiness having spatial dimensions, right, in Scripture that um, especially when you see the tabernacle and the temple, um, you've got this this series of, of gradations of holiness uh, and approach. Um, you know, the priests, and then only the high priests, and so on and so forth. Only in these parts of the sanctuary, and only on these days, uh, because the closer and closer you get in, the the more and more you're uh, coming near the holy fire uh, of God's God's presence, and then you come to the New Testament, and then you have all these stunning passages about open access, and um, that you know you, you can you can kind of you can kind of write that off as pictorial um, you know, the Bible using pictorial language to, to communicate something. But I think it, it's really, it's just really stunning to the way in the way it, 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 brings out a reality that we know and that we experience, but in a sense, until, until it's articulated until it's, it's presented before us in, in such a fashion, um, we're not really grasping the reality of the the, the presence, the nearness, or the distance uh, of of God, and that that how how interior that distance really is. That the distance is going on within oneself. Um, the distance is is the alienation of your own heart. The distance is the alienation of of sin, uh, and the way it, in a sense, turns you inward, uh, even as you're looking out at the skies and the stars and the world, there's this sense of like, if you're seeing these things and you're not being overwhelmed with the presence of God, that's just a sign of how inward and blind you are, even as you're looking out because you're surrounded by him and his glory and his holiness to some degree. I know that there was a little bit of a ramble, but that Augustine's continual pulling on that thread of space and, and, um, and uh, nearness and our spiritual eyes, I think is right in this reading of it is, is one of the things that is striking me most, uh, that I, I, I don't think I had eyes to see even a year ago. Um,
2: Derek with, within that theme, um, the very end of book two, you read the first part of the final paragraph, but the, the end of the paragraph I think is also worth considering, um, uh, with you is utter peace and a life immune from disturbance. The person who enters into you enters into the joy of the Lord and will not be afraid. He will find himself in the supreme good where it is supremely good to be. As an adolescent, I went astray from you, my God, far from your unmoved stability. I became to myself a region of destitution. Um, that's such a that's such an astonishing ending, and i I love the way, I love the way that um, uh, it's translated, that Chadwick translates it. It's it's uh, I became to myself a region of destitution, and Chadwick points to the Neoplatonic emphases uh, or or aspects of what it means to be in destitution. But um, there's There's also like a prodigal son motif here where he has gone into the far country where there was a famine, right? Um, uh, After he had uh, spends everything uh, in the far country, after he wastes all of his resources, there's a famine in the far country and he begins to be in need. Um, He's, he's destitute and there's, there's a strong sense in which Augustine is the prodigal son who has traveled, who, into the far country uh, wasted all of his resources, and is now destitute he 's um, uh, hes he's spent it all and he has nothing left um, and i that that sense of movement and of place uh, and of spatiality i think is um, uh, related to Augustine as pilgrim, right he is the one who is going through this journey who is walking down this path um and it's his sort of exodus and return his his uh, prodigality and his coming back that forms the the architectonic framework of of what the confessions of of his narrative of uh conversion and so on um uh that 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 all takes so i i think there's a lot you're you're right that there's a lot about spatiality um yeah <laughs>
1: In some ways, more immediate than the um, prodigal theme is the theme of um, fall and um, exile from the garden. Um, That already in the choice of the the stealing of pears as an image of sin that he explores, I think it's significant because there's something about that image that reminds us of Genesis and our first exile from God. Now, many people, when they read that story in Genesis, say it's such a small thing. Um, why should the fall of man occur within this event of just stealing fruit? But yet there's significant in that, significance in that act. And in the same way, Augustine sees significance in his act of theft, of the pears, and within that act is hidden everything that leads to him being brought into this realm of destitution um a realm of um thorns and briars, and this loss of and this loss of presence or so this loss of um this movement away from God into this place of destitution. I think that parallel is. One that he plays upon in a number of subtle ways to draw his reader's attention to this this likeness now it would have been very easy for him to focus upon some more um some more significant sin in inverted commas, but yet there's something about this sin that is particularly apt for serving his his purposes here. And I think part of that is the parallel parallel with genesis. I think part of it is also that. Sin has, I mean, there are two ways, sin can be seen as just such a small thing that it's not worth giving it any notice. On the other hand, sin can come to us with a a glamour and a charm that um, instantly attracts us to it. And on the one hand, that smallness is challenged by the way that he investigates this and looks at it very strongly closely and sees that within that sin examined up close there is all the ugliness of the seed of greater rebellion and it's something in which the full presence of sin can be discovered on the other hand that glamour he avoids that by not focusing upon some of the more glamorous sins that we might think about but but by showing that even in that small act there is a charm to the the crime. But that charm is soon dispelled by close examination and you see the rottenness at the heart of it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the element of seduction, uh, there's that line in there. Um, I can't remember exactly which page of it. Uh, I was, I was seduced because I wanted to be seduced. Um, and there was just that element of, of, of the willful the desire to find these things attractive. The desire to find these things, these opportunities. Um it, it's just striking the way he, he 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 draws that out and you recognize yourself. Um fellas, anything else you guys wanted to dig into in book two or we're gonna call it a day.
1: I'll be interested to hear your thoughts on the significance that he gives to doing these things in company with others. Um, Hmm. So things like, my pleasure was not in the pairs, it it was in the crime itself, done in association with a sinful group. And then later, friendship can be a dangerous enemy, a seduction of the mind lying beyond the reach of investigation. Out of a game and a jest came an avid desire to do injury, an appetite to inflict loss on someone else without any motive on my part of personal gain and no pleasure in settling a score. As soon as the words are spoken, let us go and do it, one is ashamed not to be shameless. And that shamelessness that is encouraged by a group um, is something that's a theme that recurs in the chapter. So his um, shame in his own... in any chastity that he might have, and his desire to um, engage in gossip about some sexual escapades or whatever he's been up to, simply in order to seem part of the group. All of this is a theme that he explores, the way that we behave in particular ways in company, and how our desire for human um, belonging can be one of the key drivers of our sin. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot there that we can and should talk about even as, as we go on into the, the subsequent books, Alistair. They, the, the sense of shame that you identify, um, it, you know, it raises a question about um, responsibility. I mean, Augustine is often associated with guilt, and with this astonishing recognition of his own guilt and his own wrongdoing. Um, but shame is a different, you know, it, it plays a different role in his thought than just, I was wrong to do it. Um, there's a sense in which, uh, it provides a kind of restraint, a kind of, uh, formation that guilt alone doesn't suffice to do. Um, and shame seems to be particularly tied to um concupiscence right to the um to this errant desire that he's wrestling with in this uh in this particular episode um and so i i, I wonder yeah to to me it just it, it it raises a question about the sort of means of pressure or the means of Um, restraint that Augustine is uh, developing or deploying within a moral psychology in order to bring about sanctification, right? It's not enough to recognize that he did wrong it. You have to recognize that the wrongdoing took a corporate public form in a particular way, such that shame is the appropriate and fitting response to this wrongdoing. Um, uh, even though, you know, it's it's a sort of shameless act. Um But then he also yeah. talks about so a I think that's, that's of right. shame. So that instinct
1: that we have can be perverted such that we feel shame if we are not acting shamelessly. Right, right. Yeah, I I and think And so it, it's very well, much it's very much a public virtue in that our shame is felt um relative to the judgment of others and the the eyes of others upon us and if those eyes right. are the eyes of the shameless and the sinful we will feel shame um about virtue
0: one one thing two things that strike me there one is the corrosive power of sin to corrupt anything right the, the social bond is a good thing uh, undoubtedly any even the social bond of just reinforced behavior like of, of, of community I maybe mean, it's a good community that's a great thing that's a, that's, a, that's a protective fence it's a, it's, a, it's a it's a it's a you know it's a cast that helps set the bone it's it's, it's very helpful but when it goes bad um, you know when when institutional structures that are meant to help you know individual and small uh, you know small individuals from getting lost uh, turn on them, well, then it, it goes extra bad. So that, that's the first thing that strikes me of that is just the way the the inversion, uh, the way sin corrupts good institutions, um, against their end. The, the second thing is, so I, I unfortunately have read just enough Gerard that it comes, that he comes up whenever like a discussion of desire and, and, uh, group, group sociality comes up, um, and it's interesting that, 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 so Gerard's notion of, you know, mimetic desire comes in there. There's, a, there's an imitative element, um, but I'm wondering how much this really fits that paradigm because the emphasis is not on, on the desire for the thing itself so much as the desire for the company and it's not it's not competitive, right? He doesn't he doesn't he doesn't uh, focus on the competitive nature of that desire. Uh, although you can probably find it there in the in the boasting of young men amongst each other about what they've done or haven't done, or um, but there's that level of fundamentally, I want to fit, right? It's not fundamentally I want to beat you. Fundamentally, I want to I want to have that thing that you have so that I have it and you don't, or because your desire has shown me that it's a good thing. Um, there's this desire to fit that uh, that he's treating as possibly overarching uh, over all of that, and that I don't I don't know if that really fits that paradigm as well. I think it's it's something like the desire of of to be with and presence and 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 association itself um, doesn't quite fit the I don't know competitive imitative dimension as as strongly I don't know if that's right or not but this is one of the Alistair what do you think well is it is interesting
1: I'm that throughout the um, towards the end of the chapter he talks a lot about the theme of imitation um, but it's imitation as a sort of parody of the divine um, so pride imitates what is lofty but you alone are God most high above all things what does ambition seek but honor and glory yet you alone are worthy of honour and are glorious for eternity, etc. And then he tries to see in what respect um, he imitated God within his action. But that imitation is, in some senses, it is a Girardian imitation. It's a it's a desire to be as God, to take his place within the world um, and to occupy his position. So it's a perverse... Um, imitation of God or parody of God in order that we might be like God but yet it fails to appreciate that all these goodnesses are only to be found in God and in submission to him yeah and so all so. of our vices and in some senses he gives one could argue maybe it's, it's unfair on him but one could argue that he gives a Girardian account of the vices
0: I'm, I'm kinda sad that I set you up to say that on our on our podcast. <laughs> Matt, Matt, correct. Save it. Save it. Nope. Nope. nope.
2: Just nope. punishment.
0: <laughs> um <laughs> well on that note, um, we will we will return to these themes, some of these themes, I think, in the next book as we progress. But for now, I think it's time to wrap it up. If you have been uh If this is your first time listening to this uh, show, we're going through the confessions with Augustine again. And uh, in case you didn't know, we are going through the translation by Henry Chadwick. So you can pick that up and we'll be, we'll be, we'll be uploading these about every other week. um, The, the, the confessions discussions. So if you want to join in um, once again, it's your opportunity, but uh, overall, thanks for listening to our discussion we hope this was uh an encouragement and a blessing uh, to you as it was for us Uh, for now have a good day